When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So are we headed for a soft landing? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Peter Bookvar, CIO of Bleakly Advisory Group. Hi, Peter. It's so nice to see you. Hi, Maggie. Same here. Thanks. We survived the first week of 2023. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all uphill yeah. from here. I, I need a weekend. I know we do. We do need a weekend. We were all talking about that. It's hard to get back in the swing of it. Um, but we are ending the week on a pretty good looking note, If at least if you're um, a bull for equities. We had a big jobs report today. Investors seemed to like what they he heard, especially when it came to wages. We saw U.S. stock markets uh, up. They're just closing, but it looks like they've got you know booking in gains well over 2%. We saw the 10-year Treasury down, yield down to three around 3.55%, so bonds and stocks rallying. What did you make of the jobs report? Uh, it was actually somewhat mixed uh, in the sense of the establishment survey being around in line with expectations when you include the revisions, but the household survey showing a very short increase, which is sort of a catch-up play considering uh, the last six months we've seen uh, a lot of disappointments with the household survey. But with even within the household survey, a lot of it, or most of it, were part-time jobs. Mm. Uh, but it was that increase that led to the decline in the unemployment rate, but then, of course, you had uh, hours worked, which missed expectations and fell to the lowest level since uh, the shutdowns. You had weaker than expected wage growth. Uh, so it was very much a, a mixed bag. But of course, it was then followed up by the ISM services, which was very soft and uh, confirms the weakness in manufacturing that the U.S. economy is in or on the cusp of a recession. But of course, markets love it because that means the Fed's almost done raising interest rates. Yeah. So it's that sort of bad news is good news. We have some charts you sent over too. And I think I was like, you know, looking at the visuals because you can understand why people got excited if you were worried about this runaway inflation, that wage number, people, re you could see immediately when it crossed that the market was reacting to that. Because remember, the you know, the, the reason the Fed has been so focused on the labor market is because that's that sticky inflation, that wage inflation that, that, that they worry once we see it, it's really hard to get that down. Um, that's, that's the inflation they really worry about. And it is moving in the right direction. When you put these things together and the service side, which has been running hot with the ISM, that's starting to weaken. Um, is it is this the making of a soft landing? Is this what it looks like? So I'm actually more worried about we're we're ha we're ha we're going to have a recession. Uh, I am more worried about something that is more drawn out, mm. not necessarily a sharp down re uh, recession like we had in 08 but something that's just more of a malaise type feel. And yeah, you can call that a, a soft landing, but a lot of times the soft landing implies a soft recovery. And yeah. I don't think that that really is, is any better either, as opposed to a sharp downturn and a sort of a V bottom. 
So I think that we're heading into a period of time that's more than just one year of the cost of capital being elevated. And what makes that relevant is it comes after 15 years of very low levels of interest rates. In other words, by keeping rates higher for longer, every month, every year for the next couple of years, every, everybody's um, loan that matures mm. is going to be refinanced at a much higher interest rate. And that is why I think it's more of a death by a thousand cuts economy when looking out over the next couple of years is that more and more money, more and more cash flow, I should say, is going to be allocated to one's interest expense. And if overall economic growth is modest, you know, that's a squeeze on profit margins. You talked about labor costs. And yeah, while labor costs are moderating, they're still running almost double the pace uh, pre-COVID. So I, again, I'm more worried about more of an economic malaise than, than anything in that a soft landing is not necessarily good if it leads to you know, a soft recovery. That's a really, really good point, Peter. And like we, we, people just haven't sort of, you know, I think run the scenario out that way um, because I get maybe because we were braced for disaster uh, that that seems okay, but you're right. And when you talk about cost of capital, I mean, I think you explained it really well, but just to put a fine point on that, that's that hits all of us. That hits consumers, that hits businesses, that hits big corporations, but really importantly, those mom and pop sort of smaller businesses that really keep the economy going. I mean, anybody that ever has a loan, and, let, and we all have them, we have to. I mean, no one can buy everything outright. Very few can, I should say. Um, that that is going to be really tough when you go to do if that if that remains the case that they are going to be a lot higher. In some cases, it's going to be double what people maybe more than what people were used to the last time they got their car, their small loan. That's huge, right? And, and to slice this up, if you're a company that has had access to the capital markets over the last couple of years, you've been if you're your CFO and treasurer are competent enough, you've been able to term out your debt to an extent. Uh, so when you look at sort of the maturity wall for high yield and investment grade, that really hits in 2024, 2025. So let's just say 2023, if you have those bonds outstanding, you're going to be okay. But even a lot of those companies still have a percentage of their debt that's floating rate. And Companies sort of below that that haven't aren't able to to, to borrow like that uh, and have to offer a leverage loan as opposed to a high yield bond. Uh, well, you are basically borrowing floating rate. Now, some companies certainly hedge out; they can do an interest rate swap, um, but many don't. And the size of the leverage loan market is about the size of the high yield market at or about 1.4, 1.5 trillion. And then just think about all the small and medium-sized businesses that are just borrowing money from their local bank. Now, yes, some can borrow from their bank at fixed rate, uh, and hopefully many have, but there are also many that have not. And those um, loans are going to get repriced at a much higher interest rate. So, and, and, and I'm very worried. So I'm very worried about the leveraged loan market, and I'm also concerned about the commercial real estate market, because just, uh, just imagine 
uh, um, you know, we, we saw obviously the, the Fed's response to to COVID, they slashed interest rates. So imagine the, 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 the real estate developer or the real estate investor that bought property or decided to take on a project in 2020, 2021. And if you're a builder, well, you, you take on a, a construction loan. And then when the project gets done, you convert it to a conventional loan. Well, in 2020, when you started the project, assuming it would take three years, well, you, you, you're, you're, you were penciling in maybe a two and three quarter, 3% type loan that you were able to get at the time and assume that in three years, it would be around that level. Well, 2023, that loan is actually going to be about 8% instead of three. So that's almost a tripling of your interest rate that you're going to be paying on your debt. So whatever rental income you were penciling in in 2020, uh, you're going to you're going to get you, you may still get that rent number, but a lot of it's going to get eaten up by your mortgage payment. And you're going to have very little to pay your maintenance, your taxes, your insurance and the other operating expenses. So this year is going to be a lot of handing back the keys uh, for those commercial real estate developers that uh, took on too much debt relative to the value of the property. Uh, so th this is not like an event. It's, it's a process. It's every month somebody's loan is coming due at a much higher interest rate than the loan that is maturing. And that's because of 15 years of low interest rates yeah. and a sharp increase over the past 12 months, which I refer to as shock interest rate um, uh, impact to the economy that um, is going to be sort of a drawn out process. And when I hear, and uh, while I understand the market cheering the feds being what I think is almost done raising interest rates, it's higher for longer. That really should matter. Because keep in mind, if the feds stopped raising interest rates today and four and a quarter, four and a half was it, just by keeping it at that level for a period of time is a form of tightening because mm -hmm. of the reasons I gave that every month, somebody's loan is resetting higher. So they don't need to keep raising interest rates to tighten further. They just need to keep rates high for longer, which is a form of consistent tightening. Yeah, no, excellent, excellent point. And I think James um, in our comments put it perfectly saying, James Holman, completely agree with Peter. We are all going to bleed out slowly. <laughs> yeah, It sounds so, it's perfect, but it's like so painful to think about. By the way, if you have a question, comment, drop it in the chat on YouTube, in the comment section of our platform, or you could tweet us at Real Vision. Um, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, Peter, that's really, I think that's really important because the knee jerk reaction today is very much about the pivot. It's, it's still about the Fed pivot, and you're saying, um, you know, we're looking at the wrong thing. Do you think either bonds or stocks have priced in the scenario that you just laid out that even if the Fed stops, that we are just going to see this painful sort of rolling out impact of higher for longer? Is that priced in the market or any market right now? Well, let's take that in two, two ways. From a multiple perspective, 
I don't see this bear market ending at 17 times earnings. Wait, you know what? Pause right there. I want to read something. Since you said that, you sent over a few of your notes. I want to read something um, and, and bear with me. I'm, it's a little bit, it's almost a paragraph, but I really want to read it because it stopped me in my tracks. Um, and you said, as for the equity bear market, I don't know exactly how it progresses from here, as the consensus seems to be down in the first half, rallying the second half. But consensus is usually wrong. All I'm confident about is it ain't over. The biggest financial bubble in the history of bubbles that being sovereign debt and everything priced off that risk-free rate doesn't end with the S&P 500 down 20% off the highs. It doesn't end at 17 times multiples. It doesn't end with a notable earnings recession with credit spreads nowhere close to previous wides. It doesn't end until everyone throws in the towel, not wanting to ever own a stock again. <sighs> like that hit me like a rock because it doesn't feel like that yet. No, it, it does not, and 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 I probably said it on on the, the show before that uh, there are usually three stages to a bear market. Um, the first one is the the valuation reset, you know, the initial one where we sort of take off a lot of the froth, which we've had a nice valuation reset, even though I don't think that's necessarily over. And then phase two is sort of the economic consequences of of central bank tightening, the recession both in terms of economic activity and also on the earnings side. And then the third phase is everyone just throws in the towel. And I really just see the, just the beginnings of the second phase, that earnings estimates are now getting marked down. Economic activity certainly is seen by ISM manufacturing and services this week, both below 50. Um, that, that, that now we're just sort of digging into phase two. And listen, we're going to have rallies like we had today. We, this could continue. Um, but I, I still, um, I still think that this has a ways to go. And to my point about, you know, sovereign bonds being the biggest bubble in the history of bubbles, it really was um, epic in Europe and Japan. I mean, that was sort of the epicenter with negative interest rate policy. And the other interesting thing this week is that the for for bonds maturing one year and 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 uh, and more, we the the number of negative yielding bonds is officially at zero. There was one bond left in Japan that matured in 2024 that had a negative yield going into this week that as of this week that went, that yield went to zero. So December 2020, we had $18 trillion of negative yielding bonds. And this week that is now down to zero. And while that is a great thing, because I think negative interest rate policy was the dumbest idea in the history of economics, there's still an adjustment and getting back to the cost of capital discussion, there are still implications to the popping of this of this bubble. And everything priced off low of, 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 of low rates and negative rates and zero rates in the US and the bubble we had in bonds here as well, you know, that's gonna take time to to filter through. And um, that's why the spare market's not over. Now, that said, I'm still long stocks. We're as a firm, we're long stocks. And I think bear markets are great times to be buying stocks because that's when tremendous values are created. But just as you tell your children when they go out, always be aware of your surroundings. An investor always has to be aware of their investing surroundings um, in, in order to try to look around those corners and, and try to, when you're in this hall of mirrors, trying to find your way out.
Yeah. And figure out what companies or what sectors or what areas will be able to perform in the environment that we might be facing. I want to talk a little bit about that opportunity, uh, but I want to go back to your concern about this gigantic bubble bursting and we're not really through the phases of pain yet. So should I understand that to mean that you think something's going to break? Like that's what we were talking about when when the Fed went on, started going on the aggressive rate hike. They're going to hike till they break something. Uh, do you still think that we are going to see some sort of dislocation in some market or some kind of major financial event? Or is this just going to look like a slower unravel of something? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be more of a, a slower unravel um, because of, 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 of the U.S. economy, the global economy, just sort of living a life that, that was very reliant on credit. You know, there was once a time when savings rates were much higher and people relied less on credit to both live their lifestyle and businesses to, to run their business. I mean, there used to be a time when there was a lot of AAA, AA, single A companies. Now, at least in investment grade, you know, we're, we're, we, we're half the market or more is, is triple Bs, um, where I should, that's the overall in, in market. But we, we, we've grown through credit and less on savings. And now that the cost of that credit is going to be higher for longer, um, I don't necessarily see an event causing an accident, but just a progression of, like I said, death by a thousand cuts. Now, that said, if at some point the, the U.S. stock market sort of unravels as it resets P-E ratios to maybe 13 times instead of 17 times and off maybe $180 a share of earnings rather than 200 or 220. And all of a sudden you're talking about an S&P that's much lower and what that will do to consumer spending and, and, and sort of this, this, this unravel. I mean, that, that's possible. But I think that this is just going to be a progression of just nicks here and there that's just sort of going to wear us down. Now, that's just a lot of it's, I think, the U.S. market. And mm. I, I still think that there are a lot of other opportunities out there. Like on the positive side this year, I think the China reopening is, is a huge positive for global economic activity. So I don't want to sound all sort of doom and gloom here because there are a lot of mixed uh, cross currents that are going to take place here. Um, but I think China in the, in the second quarter is going to have a party uh, to the upside. And I think anybody who's doing business with China is going to have a party to the upside. Uh, and parts of Europe, like Germany, is going to really enjoy a resurgence in the Chinese economy. Not to growth rates that we had before, but just imagining 1.4 billion people that have been essentially locked up for three years that are now going to be unleashed in the world. So there are going to be some positives here this year. Um, I, I just want to be as realistic as possible about it. No, absolutely. Um, so so let's dive in uh, and talk about some of those um, positive. We have a, a question. I'm going to get to it in one second. I just want to follow on that thought. I've heard some, you know, China is so hard to gauge, right? So we don't get a lot of reliable data, certainly since COVID and the lockdown. We've, it's even even less reliable. And I've heard, I've, I, I hear a lot of anticipation about China reopening, but I've heard some mixed comments or some people wondering what it'll mean and who will win. So do we think that Chinese consumers are going to sort of go crazy and, and want to travel and want to go out and want to, in the way that we saw happen 
either in the U.S. or to a certain extent in Europe pre the pre the Ukraine war? Um, or do they does that look different? Does the reopening look different? You think it follows the same playbook we saw here? And how how will we know that? I don't think we should treat China's reopening any different than what we experienced in the U.S., what Europe experienced. They're going to break free. And they're people like we are people. Human nature is human nature. And in fact, their savings rate actually went up a lot over the last three years because they didn't spend money anywhere. So there's a lot of money that Chinese consumers have that they're going to spend. And I think it would be a mistake to treat the Chinese reopening any different than the reopening in the rest of the world over the last couple of years. Mm. And what, what do you think the, the, the government response to that is? I mean, we've been ta- a lot of people have been talking about how there's a lot of economic challenges that she's facing and that their domestic market looks weaker than it was. Colin is asking this question on YouTube. Um, if their market is weak, where does the strength come from? Do they, do they flip more to a consumer-led economy or is that just going to be sort of the, the reopening move and then it'll settle back to something else? Well, it, it will be certainly a, a, a long runway of, of consumer spending and uh, on, on things and experiences. Uh, but you know, th- one thing about the Chinese economy is the manufacturing side. You know, it still ended up being uh, you know a manufacturing powerhouse even through COVID. Mm. You know, people still went to the factory to work uh, after the, you know, the initial COVID spikes in 2020. Now it's all obviously screwed up because of of, of COVID blowing through everywhere there, but you know, China manufacturing is still pretty dominant. Now, on the, on the flip side, what's going on with, with residential real estate is certainly a challenge uh, since it makes up 30% of, of their economy. So it's not necessarily going to be clear sailing uh, in China, but um, I do think that there's going to be an economic uh, resurgence of note. And again, it's not just going to be helpful for China. It's going to be good for anybody who does business with China. It's going to be good for the shops in Champs-Élysées and on Regent Street in London. And it's going to be good for, um, as I mentioned, Germany, since China is their biggest customer. Every single country in Asia, their biggest customer is China. Mm-hmm. So if China starts to grow again, and again, not the growth rates that we saw previously, but if there's a runway of, 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 of a short um, rebound, then that entire region is going to benefit by selling more stuff there and hosting the, the, the Chinese tourism. I mean, Chinese tourists pre-COVID were spending $250 billion a year. Wow. That number went to basically zero. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot to, I think, look forward to with that, that China consumer. And let's look past the next, the next year. Let's look out the next five years. The size of the Chinese middle class is going to double. Mm. So put aside President Xi and his authoritarian regime and, and all the negatives that come of that. And um, the, the Chinese consumer should be the focus of people analyzing the Chinese economy and the Asian region, broadly speaking. And it's not just the growing middle class in China. It's the growing middle class in India. It's the growing middle class in Vietnam. It's the growing middle class in Indonesia. This is where the global growth is going to be of note over the next 10 years. It's not going to be in Europe. It's not going to be in the U.S., maybe parts of, of, of South America that does business with China. But the Asian region over the next 10 years is going to be, I believe, the, the standout in terms of growth and also stock market performance. 
So you're so you're bullish. You're very bullish on emerging markets. It sounds like well, emerging markets in that basket, Asian emerging yes. markets. Yes, exactly. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, it's very interesting because I just, um, uh, Rushi Sharma uh, just sent me um, an essay he did for the FT, and uh, he was talking about uh, ROW, R O W, rest of the world, as, a, as an acronym. Uh, that and and Darius earlier in the week was talking about Tara. There are reasonable alternatives, right? Both of those things as as new concepts that we have to wrap our head around. Moving away from Tina, there is no alternative when we're talking about U.S. stocks. Yeah, I mean, and maybe this week was a dress rehearsal. I mean, the, the Hang Seng was up five percent this week. The Euro stock six hundred was up almost five percent this week, and the S and P five hundred's up. After, well, thanks to today, it's up half that. Uh, but we've already seen our performance in, in markets outside the U.S. And uh, I think this first week, like I said, is a dress rehearsal for what we're, we're going to see for the rest of the year. Very interesting. I want to ask you about energy. So, you know, there is the thought that if China reopens, that's going to be a, a huge boom for commodities. Um, other people, are again, are not so sure uh, that the Chinese would like that. And, you know, the thought is they have a lot of supplies. They pre-bought a lot. Um, they would do re basically release from their reserves in the way we did. Ha before we, I get your thoughts, um, Andreas tackled the, the issue of energy um, and energy price, especially in relation to Europe, in the debut of his new show, Steno Signals. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Which equity sectors? perform when inflation is slowing and which equity sectors suffer. And there is one overwhelming conclusion when you look at 10 years of historic data on inflation relative to the performance in various equity subsectors. The most sensitive sector on the exchange to a declining inflation is the energy sector. So basically the darling of 2022, the sector that outperformed right about everything. I would argue that if inflation slows, it will show up in an underperformance in the energy stocks as well. Potentially also in the physical commodity markets, but clearly also in the energy stocks. You can see this based on 10 years of history in the left-hand table. This is a chart showing the beta of every equity sector to a one percentage point move in the inflation index. So every time inflation falls 1%, in history, the energy sector suffers by 10%. I don't expect the energy sector to suffer that much, but it is clearly a signal that energy suffers when inflation declines. So, Peter, what, what's your view on energy in the energy sector? So, I remain very bullish. Uh, I got bullish in October 2020, uh, right before the Pfizer vaccine news, just feeling that 
the sector was so washed out that we were ho hoping for some reasonably effective vaccine. Uh, fast forward to today, oil prices have obviously come in a lot, but I think the energy stocks never really priced in north of 100 oil, and they were always pricing in around $70. Mm. So even if oil prices stayed at these levels, the energy companies are still going to make a lot of money. And because I am so optimistic about the impact of a China reopening, I don't think oil is just going back to 100. I think oil goes to 125 to 150 uh, on this reopening. And the lack of supply, and I know people understand the lack of supply, um, but I don't really think they understand the extent of the lack of supply. Uh, and, and when you get the second largest economy back in line with the rest of the world, the combination of those factors are going to lead to much higher oil prices. So uh, we remain bullish. We remain long. Um, recently bought uh, another oil company yesterday. And um, I, I think prices go much higher. And I think that that will also sort of complicate the whole inflation debate mm. uh, because you have goods prices falling. You have services prices accelerating, but could stop accelerating because rent growth is slowing. But then commodity prices that can remain elevated because China's reopening. So there's going to be like a lot of these sort of zigs and zags with the inflation picture. But so I think goods prices will continue to slow, but still. We'll, we'll, so I guess my point is, is that inflation goes up. Inflation's not coming down. The question, though, now is not whether it's going to come down. It's where does it eventually settle out at? Mm -hmm. Going back to the pre-COVID inflation trends of one to two percent, or have are we going to are we going to settle out at a higher level of inflation for the next couple of years? And that's where I stand. Can inflation by the end of the year be below two percent just on a rate of change basis? Yes, but the one to two percent sustainable trend is now going to be three to four, and uh, three to four percent inflation doesn't sound like a lot compared to what we've seen over the last couple of years, but it's going to lead to, back to the theme, higher interest rates for longer. Yeah. What Really quickly, uh, if you're bullish energy, are you also bullish other parts of the commodity complex? So um, I'm very bullish um, on precious metals, even though obviously that's less economically sensitive, even though silver is, and we're bullish on, very bullish on silver. Uh, I do like copper. I think that, again, the China reopening is going to be a, a big lift for copper in addition to the whole renewable thing. Uh, looking at aluminum, but I haven't done anything yet because it's pulled back a lot. Uh, but I do think there's just going to be a, a, a natural uplift in, in a lot of these commodities uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, now, commodities are, are rental stocks. They're not long-term investments. You be cognizant of that. You want to trade the the trend and, and make sure that uh, you don't stay on that horse for too long. But uh, I do think commodities, generally speaking, after this recent pullback, are going to uplift again. And I'm going to point the finger again uh, to China as being the reason. So short pullbacks uh, should be bought in this in this space. Mm. Um, and uh, that. JB, it doesn't exactly answer your question about um, land trust, but we—I I hope that we touched on it with mineral rights. Um, if if uh, 
you're looking at that space, at least in terms of the metals involved. So, uh, Peter, if, if I think about what to take away from this conversation, it's that maybe we need to cast our 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 eye out a little bit further and stop being so fixated on pivot and really think about what higher for longer means. And you think it's a lot of pain um, and a lot of adjustment as everyone realizes that every loan they ever thought about taking out is just going to be priced much higher and that's going to take money away um, from your disposable income, from your spending, from businesses' ability to operate, um, which sounds like it's going to be really tough sledding. And that's for everyone everywhere since we've now moved out of this negative interest rate environment. And it doesn't sound like you think that's priced in. It sounds like you think there's more downside for stocks, but there is also opportunity, especially when it comes to China reopening and pretty much anything that touches that. Yes, uh, I think that, that that pretty much sums it up. Um, and just to say quickly on the earnings front, the, the two biggest drivers of profit margin expansion outside of the uh, 2017 corporate income tax cut was lower interest expense and cheap labor. And both have reversed. And even though wage costs are plateauing here and maybe softening, like I said earlier, it's still running at about double the pace pre-COVID. And interest expense is obviously much higher for those whose debt is coming due. So that's going to hurt Earn the earning side. And I think the PE multiple in the market is going to bottom at a lower level than where we are now and call it 13, 14 times rather than 17 times, even though 17 is down from 21, 22. That's a big adjustment to make. Peter, it's been fantastic to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Always fun. We appreciate it. And thanks to all of you. And thanks for the great comments and questions. We'll be right back out at Monday. In the meantime, have a fantastic weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.